0: There, Kathy Armias, I just had an amazing conversation with Ryan and we were talking about how speaking can be a little bit like learning to drive from your drunk uncle, but we covered things from what the speaking world is in regards to driving and are you driving a Toyota or are you driving a Bentley or are you driving a Ducati? Or are you looking to drive and get a license for a rocket? So uh, check out our podcast. It was amazing, fun and inspirational. Welcome to the World
1: of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everyone. And we are back. I'm super excited today because we have Kathy Armias. That's Armias like tortillas. And she is a marketing strategist and a TED coach. And we're going to hear today about the interesting combo that she has in the speaking world. Kathy, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
0: I am amazing. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. Excellent. Amazing is a nice
1: single choice word. I, it's always fun when you ask people how they're doing. It's either good, great, grand, fantastic. I haven't had an amazing in a while. Why is life so amazing for you right now? Why, why did we come up with that word?
0: Oh, life is amazing. It's it's one of my words. It's funny that you would point that out. I love awesome and I love amazing. And I think that those are adjectives that I like to use. I, I, life is amazing. I don't know. Life's what you make of it. And it's been amazing for me lately. I love what I do. I love the people I work with. So it's amazing
1: awesome. And now one of my favorite words is rad. And ah. I still get some slack from, you know, people, maybe that's just coming from my, my old school surfing and skateboarding days. I still surf and skateboard, but I'll be like, that's rad. And people are just like, <laughs> who uses rad? <laughs> I still use rad. I like it. I totally love that. Good. Well, I'm excited to have a rad conversation with you and to help everybody get an idea of who you are. I'm not the type of person that just reads off accolades and bios. I like to hear stories, and I think we all do. So my challenge to you is to tell me a single story from some time in your life, and imagine that that is the only piece of information that I get if I'm going to introduce you to somebody else. What would that story look like?
0: Okay, I have this really funny story um, of how I learned to drive. So I... I have this uncle who at the time I didn't realize, but he was drunk all the time. So he was an alcoholic.
1: <laughs> the Classic drunk uncle, like classic, the classic drunk, drunk uncle,
0: Uncle Phil was drunk <laughs> all the time and he decided when i was 12 years old that he wanted me to learn how to drive you know he wanted to teach me how to drive so he's like oh i'm going to teach her how to drive it was it became his thing and so he takes me out to his car and he, do you remember these old school he had uh, it was a 1979 mercury cougar like this huge like they're really really long long in the front end you know the hood's really long yeah, and so
1: gotta fit all that engine. Yeah, in there. exactly,
0: all the steel, and so you know he's drunk at the time, and and he's trying to take me around, <laughs> but I had a problem. I couldn't like there were two things. Like I could either reach the pedal, like if I leaned down because it was so far away or I could see over the top of the hood cause I had to like <laughs> lift up to see over the top of the hood, but I couldn't do both. Right. So I had to quickly and like, you know, he didn't have much advice for me other than like, don't run through the red light. Don't hit the cement, you know, thing over here. And so it was kind of crazy. So I had to learn to adjust on the fly. Like I had to, sometimes I had to like reach for the brake and not see what I was actually seeing in front of me. And sometimes <laughs> I had to like look over to see where I was going. So <laughs> I don't know. I think it was a really funny story because I actually learned how to navigate that. Like I learned how to kind of switch between the two. And I, that's how I learned to drive. And we started off in the, the parking lot of Vons, like down in the Valley in California. And then we ended up on the roads and that's how I learned how to drive in 1979 red mercury cougar <laughs> with my drunk uncle.
1: <laughs> okay. And and I'm going to imagine that, uh, that when you're teaching people to proverbially drive on stage there are elements that are involved where you're helping them to understand where the brake is, where the pedal is, to look over that dashboard. And there's a lot of moving parts. And speaking is almost like a stick shift, right? Because sometimes you've got to switch into the different gears and things like that. But your ability to just take the challenge, not cry run away <laughs> and you know, not take it on. I would assume, You know, I think that you're very much a person who is okay with on-the-fly situations, and you almost have to be a coach because you can't be anything less than just reactive and and perceptive and attacking one end and then the other. So I think this is an interesting story that we're going to definitely work off of here today. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I think when you're teaching other people how to be themselves and how to speak their best way, you can't. You have to teach them that they have to figure out that formula. You know, they have to figure out, do I need to hit the brakes or the gas right now? Or do I really need to see over the hood right now? Is it it really imperative that I need to see over the hood at this moment? (laughs) Right. And
1: you still, it's, it's nice to have somebody in the passenger seat to kind of guide you and put some parameters, like let's get some basic guidelines, but then let them sort of stumble and run over a few trash cans in the process of learning how to drive.
0: Exactly. And you just hope that the person sitting next to you isn't drunk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, you know, that could help in certain situations, yeah. right? There's actually studies, there's studies around, you know, creativity and under the influence and it and it limiting some of the inhibitions that might come with a very stagnant sober mind. So who knows? Maybe throw a couple couple glasses of wine in your coaching and you might <laughs> you might up your coaching game. <laughs> True. Have to that actually might be that might be an interesting uh, coaching experience when, you know, lesson three or four, you have a bottle of wine and you're talking and you're like, look, let's loosen things up a little bit. Let's see what happens when you're Drunk talk. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you? It, it reminds me of Drunk History. Are you a fan of Drunk History?
0: Um, no,
1: don't know what it is. Do not. No. Oh my gosh! Comedy Central Drunk History is probably the most entertaining way to learn history possible. They take these people that are either well known or they have niche expertise, and they find people with really um, like the ability to tell a story of, say, George Washington or these other famous figures. And then they basically just get them drunk and have them tell the story. And then they reenact it with other famous people. And
0: it's <laughs> legit drunk talking.
1: It's legit drunk history. So oh,
0: that's great.
1: Yeah. Well, not speaking of drunk and drinking, I don't want to get sidetracked with that. So what you're doing now is you're essentially helping people to drive their own car, which is themselves. So tell me more about the marketing strategy and the TED coaching. Because at first, I wouldn't think those are paired together. But tell me how those have formulated.
0: Well, I was totally in line with you on that. Did not think that they paired together. And and like many things that happen in life, you know, things come together and, and you realize, oh, wow, these things are a perfect pair, but I didn't realize it. Um, I started off as a marketing director a long time ago. This is like right before YouTube launched in 2005. And I worked at this unique company. We sold and we manufactured and sold industrial shredders, like large shredders that would shred like cars and mattresses and, you know, all kinds of anything big that needed to be little. And I had this crazy idea. I went to the CEO and I was like, you know what we should do? We should pay somebody to create one of those little flash players and we should put our videos up online because it's the coolest thing. Like I loved watching us shred stuff. And he was like, Kathy, that's so ridiculous. Like how many people do you think on the internet can afford a half a million dollar shredder? And I'm like, yeah, but it's cool. Like people would want to see it. So I kind of went back and forth with him. And then finally, he was like, okay, cool, whatever. So we paid a local company. It was like $10,000, $15,000 to create. Remember those old Flash players where it had to load? It's like loading, loading. The whole thing had to load.
1: Yeah, yeah. the circle of death just to get <laughs> yeah, it going. True.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we did, We and we launched what was a site called Watch It Shred. And and it went viral, like instantly. Like It was, I don't know if you remember the old site, Boing Boing, but somebody on Boing Boing found out about... Our our site and they wrote about it and then like went super viral. And the David Letterman show called us (laughs) and asked us to be part of the David Letterman show. So anyway, long story short, it kind of launched my marketing career into this thing of like crazy ideas and turning them, you know, taking an idea of something that didn't seem like it had, you know, like what's, what is cool and interesting about industrial shredders? Well, it just depends on how you look at it, you know? Right. So that happened and it was one of when YouTube launched finally in 2005, mid 2005, it was one of the first viral videos on YouTube. And so it kind of my marketing career kicked off. I ended up leaving that company and I started my own marketing company. Well, pretty soon one of my clients was actually a videographer and he was amazing. And what I loved about this guy, John, is he was like this outdoorsman, like no other, he would do, you know, caving, which is actually called blood or whatever it's called. He's just like always doing class four rapids and everything that was extreme and outdoor. And yet his clients were like, Bob's books and I and I just could never make the connection. I'm like, "Why are you why do you have such a passionate job but yet what you're doing isn't that passionate?" So, he ended up creating this video called Finding Oregon and he he took an entire summer and went to like the coolest places in Oregon and places that people who had lived here their entire life had never seen and he put together this video and it went viral. And then the you know, the executive producer at TEDx Portland which is the largest TEDx event in the United States saw his his video and called him up and said hey we want you to give a TED talk so pretty soon my world of marketing and Ted kind of coexisted at that moment because my client was like hey I just got asked to give a TED talk and I need help <laughs> so um, nice yeah so he gave this TED talk and got an eight minute standing ovation because what he ended up doing was he created a new video called finding Portland and they debuted it at during his talk And his entire talk was about how you have to be curious in life. So that was kind of his idea. And he actually did it with a partner. So that was kind of interesting. Like, teaching, not only like preparing somebody to talk on stage, but preparing two people and they demoed some equipment. And so, yeah, my first one out of the gate was kind of an interesting, rough and fun and challenging thing. But I, what I quickly learned is that a Ted talk, you know, since Ted is all about spreading ideas, I quickly learned that all a Ted talk was, was a mini marketing campaign for an idea. And so that was really what brought my two worlds together of being a marketing strategist and being a Ted coach.
1: I like this idea of a TED Talk being a mini-marketing platform. A mini, What did you say? I like that. A mini-marketing...
0: A mini-marketing campaign for an idea.
1: Yeah. And would you argue that a keynote or a, another type of talk is also a mini-marketing campaign for that idea? Is it past the TEDx stage as a general sense?
0: It should, but here's the thing. I think some people that keynote don't get that concept and don't understand why TED has been so popular and that's why. And so I, I think that it, it should and can translate, yes, outside of TED.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So is that one of your gigs now As you help people market and that maybe is a lead gen for these amazing people that have stories to share on the TED stage and those that you you have the um, those two sides of the coin and that's your main focus right now, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of my main focus is helping people market. And it's really been more in the TED coaching. But, you know, for me, I actually ended up coming up with a category that went beyond the scope of both of those. I believe that I teach people kind of the power of persuasion and both marketing and speaking are in that realm. You're trying to persuade somebody when you're speaking. You're trying to persuade somebody when you're marketing. So I teach on across the board on both. And I do it in various ways, like I do pitch training for ad agencies, and I coach a lot of people to give TED Talks. I'm Nike's, uh, Nike has an internal event called Nike Knows, and I'm their speaker coach for that. So they're giving a TED kind of like talk internally, but their focus is more on storytelling. So you just kind of hit a little bit more of the storytelling piece of it.
1: This is fascinating. I feel like you are ready to teach me how to drive a 1979 (laughs) Cougar, okay? So let's imagine that you've got somebody, uh, our listeners, we're all in the front seat with you and we're taking turns at the car. And this car is a mini marketing campaign for our idea. If you were to have our full undivided attention and considering that we're sober at the moment, (laughs) what are some of the lessons that you'd step us through from a technical standpoint? What are the top nuggets that you can cherry pick from all these workshops and all these speaker training to create a little mini lesson for us now?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, this is kind of, I mean, people maybe think this is backwards because many people, when they start to write, uh, you know, a speech or a talk or they have to give a keynote, they always think about writing first or, you know, a lot of people go to a slide deck first. And I kind of do things a little bit backwards. I don't let people write or do anything until they can actually formulate their idea Like, really, I created this thing called the idea map, and it's just a simple little thing, but it's just really focusing on, you really have to know your idea first, because even if you're giving a keynote, there inherently should be an idea in there that challenges the mind, the thought, the action of the people that you're talking to, and so that idea has to be, uh, if it's an old idea, meaning it's been around for a while, you have to give it a new polish, you have to give it a new angle, you have to give it a new something that we haven't heard before, which is really what made TED really popular is they they really do focus on that more than, it's funny because TED in a lot of people's minds is like one of the largest and most popular speaking platforms, but yet it's not a speaking platform at all. It's an idea's platform. So I would start pe- people off first with be like, what's your idea? And what do you want people to do with it? How do you want people to consume your idea? What should they do with your idea? If you have the most brilliant idea in the world, even if you can articulate it, if, if you can't make somebody do something with it, then you've really served no purpose. So that's kind of where I start is starting there. And, and not, I mean, I worked with a, I coached somebody last year at TEDx Portland. And he had this big challenge of trying to, he started a thing called um, Pitch Black here in Portland, where he was trying to get funding for black entrepreneurs. And his whole premise of his talk was like, I want people to buy local. And I'm like, wow, well, that's tough because so many people have done that before. So we spent probably two months, his name's Stephen Green, we probably spent two months just trying to figure out what his angle was going to be and how it was going to be different. And how can we say something other than what's already been said before? Well, we ended up coming up with this really cool, just slightly different angle, which was he, and he hashtagged it. It was so funny. He, he said, I just want you to cheat more. I don't want to affect all your habits. I just want you every once in a while to cheat on Starbucks or cheat on Amazon. And so it was kind of a cool, I mean, it, it was just right. fun. Like everybody loved it. And that that was the whole premise of just, of, of not trying to shame anybody, guilt anybody, but just, just wanted you to go out and cheat a little bit more on your your big box purchases.
1: Interesting. So I, I, you know, you have your idea map. I've got this thing called the 313. And I'm what you're saying here really resonates with me because your idea, however brilliant it is, if you can't communicate it in a way that gets people interested to know more about it or, or have some inclination to take action, it's all for naught. And I'm curious about your opinion on how the problem that people are solving tie into this idea, because my sort of hard line in the sand is that people don't care what you do. They don't care about you or your ideas, your business. They really care about the problem that you're solving. And it's kind of an investigative matter to find out what that is. And, you know, I can spend probably two months with somebody on that same process, but I'm curious your thoughts on the relationship between this idea, right? What is it that you want to do? And what do you want to take, have the audience take action with in relationship to there really being a problem that's being solved. So for example, the problem of this gentleman that people aren't shopping local and that's affecting these, these retail companies that are smaller business, they might be minorities and they're going out of business. So I'm curious, selfishly, the connection between these ideas and this core message and its relationship to the problem that's really being solved.
0: Well, I have to tell you, I watched your TED talk, uh, both of your TED talks actually. And I, <laughs> well, I've got three of them actually. Oh, yeah, three. Okay, only I, I watched yeah. two out of three. So
1: <laughs> maybe another one in the future too. I, I feel like it's an amazing stage to have the ability to mini market an idea. and unfortunately i've got plenty of them uh, but which ones which one are you talking about
0: so i watched the one where you said that the one that was called the one i'm going to refer to is the one that you said nobody cares what you do and so i yeah. love i love in this that you talked about having a problem and you talked about having a problem of a paper cut and paper cuts suck and yeah they burn and everybody can kind of everybody can kind of remember what that feels like yeah but you know it's just a little bit of a nuisance i think it's what you said and a bigger problem would be is if your finger got chopped off. <laughs> people would be yes. calling 911, like, what do we do with this dude? He's on the stage. He's bleeding out. What's going on? And I love that. <laughs> and, you know, I cracked up when I saw that because I was like, yeah, as a speaking coach and as a marketer, I'm always creating chopped fingers. I loved that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. And what, what's fun about that, the, the concept is that, like, it's not so much, you know, people get caught up on the severity. It's more severe but i really find that the difference is if you have a paper cut like you there's nothing to do about it right. i mean if you get your finger chomped off there's there's <laughs> yeah. steps that have to be taken yeah <laughs> so it's like you know that there's action to be taken
0: So I totally love that. And I do believe that that is a huge piece. And when somebody's trying to communicate their, what they want done with, you know, your idea. And sometimes the severity is just in thought. It's just like a radical thought of, you know, the way you think. I remember my sister, I have a stepsister and she's an architect and she sent me this link to a Ted talk and why we should build wooden skyscrapers. And I remember thinking to myself when she sent it to me like, I don't really care, you know? <laughs> right, right. And then I watched it and I'm like, we should build wooden skyscrapers. Like, I mean, I was like, <laughs> sold you. I was like, how did this dude like change my mind? And then ironically, like two weeks ago, this, the very same guy that got me into the Ted coaching, this uh, John Waller guy who he, he did a video job for a guy here in Portland who built the tallest, building in the United States right now that's made of completely, completely out of wood. So I was wow. like, Oh, that's crazy how that came full circle. But he actually made me when I was watching the talk, he actually made me think of it more like a chopped finger than a than a paper cut. And it was just in my mind. I mean, there was really nothing yeah. I could professionally do to help him. But I, you know, sometimes that's just what it is. I think when you were talking about that, it made a lot of sense to me is that you should make people think that your fingers chopped off, not that you have a paper cut. So yeah, love that.
1: Cool. I'm glad you dig that. Totally. So let's assume that uh, that starting the engine is, and we're in neutral at this point. I like this analogy here, right? Yeah. You actually can't drive unless you have this actual core idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What is it? Is it a finger that's chopped off? How are you going to make that pain resonate? And what are the consumers going to do with it? So here we are, the engine is turned on, but, but we're in neutral. And it might take us two months to be in neutral, right? Yeah. Until you actually... Maybe that idea is the gas, although you can't be an idol without gas, but but it's a stretch here, so we're an idol and we're neutral. What do we do now?
0: Well, so once you come up once you come up with the idea, so this is kind of part of my idea, Matt, once you come up with this idea and you have a really good angle because some of that I think is filtering, a lot of, of trying to come up with an idea is going, huh, if this idea that I was going to talk about like let's say you were going to talk about bully, and you're like, okay there's a lot of ways you could talk about bullying. There's a lot of different angles. So you cover a bunch of different angles. And then when you finally resonate on one angle, I go right to the end. I go, how would you close it? Cause that dictates everything else that you're going to put in the middle. So what is it that you want somebody to walk away with and do again? What do you want to change their thought, their actions? Like what do you want them to do with your idea? And then that gives me everything I need to kind of go, okay, well then this is how we open. But most importantly and this is where I think TED Talks and keynotes deviate. And they don't have to. They really don't. There's a lot of supporting evidence, what I call supporting evidence in TED Talks, meaning somebody's not standing on a stage and saying, hey, there's this amazing idea and it's so amazing because I say it's amazing. Right. They usually will say, hey, here's social proof or, you know, here's some kind of scientific evidence or there's data or I love psychology. I mean, I'm totally in my favorite TED talks in the world are from like psychologists, like Dan Gilbert, for instance. Every talk that he gives is amazing because he's always like his entire talk is supporting evidence. He's always talking about why people do what they do. But I think that it's really finding a cool way to highlight how to support that idea. Why is this idea really good? I mean, it can't just be a great idea because you think it is. You have to give me more than that. And I think that's where a lot of the work comes in. Now, people who tend to give Keynotes will tend to kind of scatter all over the place and and have all these points and and they just veer many times too much away from the core idea, you know. And so I think if you can stick to that core idea and that angle, but you can find a great way to continue to support that, then that's kind of where I lead people,
1: okay. so let's assume here, back to this car, when you were driving with your drunk uncle where was the final destination? Did you guys have a destination in mind? Was it like, let's drive to Macy's?
0: Yeah. Get back home safe.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, so you're in neutral and you've got this big idea. And then before you actually start driving, you have to know where you want the car to end up. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there wasn't GPS back in the day there, but now I'm envisioning like, okay, we we've typed this into the, the Google maps. But you have a variety of ways to get there. Yeah, you can take side streets. You can take the hybrid. You can literally use ways and go up, and up on the sidewalk, outsource it, go up <laughs> on the sidewalk. Yeah, like grab their attention a little bit, take out a couple of poles. So yep. I'm liking this—the fact that these are simple but powerful. Starting with the engine first to turn it on, knowing where you're going to go. But this idea of the roadmap, whether it's curbs or streets or freeways, you know, you have these abilities to pick up the different pieces of research and supportive context along the way. How do you structure navigating that? Do you have people do a bunch of research or is it all based on stories and then things to back up with research? What's the method to, to choosing this route after you know where you want to go?
0: Well, because there's two different types. If you were to just broadly categorize the type of evidence that there is, there's anecdotal and there's, you know, scientific or whatever. So you've got anecdotal, which could be stories. And then you really got more of fall under the category of kind of scientific evidence. And I think to roadmap out what you're doing, you know, one of the things you always have to know is there always has to be a a string and you always have to be going from one context or one idea or one concept to the next within the actual story, you know, your talk or, or your speech or whatever. And keeping that main idea up front and present, but being able to string this all the way through is really important. And I think Sometimes you know mistakes that we can make is that we don't do that. We'll go off into the wilderness a little bit and go, oh shoot, I totally got off track. I got to get back on the road, or I made a couple wrong turns.
1: You see the ocean, you you drive down on the beach for a little bit, and you're you know you're yeah little s- squirrel action. Maybe you follow an ice cream truck around or whatever it is, but you're saying stay to the route once you get it routed.
0: Yeah, stick the route and don't allow people. Funny story, like little deviation here, but I I ride motorcycles and I was riding it. I have a Ducati that I ride and I took my niece. My little 10 year old niece on motorcycle. And she was so excited to be on the back of the motorcycle my brother lives in this huge neighborhood that has a lot of streets and it's really confusing. And I was telling her, okay, you got to get me back home now. And, and she wouldn't tell me the way home. We got so so lost because she wanted to keep riding. Right. And, I was like, and I was like, no, Kayla, you need to tell me how to get back home right now.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So there's a couple things I'm seeing here. You are obviously sober in that situation because you've learned from your drunk uncle, but you are now the family member giving back to the younger generation, teaching them how to drive, but teaching, them on a motorcycle, which is even cooler. And when they're in the driver's seat, this is interesting because there are people who, when they are speaking, they feel like they're in the driver's seat and the rest of the world sometimes gets fuzzy and they're into their talk and they just keep talking. And then they keep talking and talking and driving around the cul-de-sac and bringing the audience with them. When the audience is like, look,
0: (laughs) take us home. Yeah, exactly. We just want to go home right now. We don't want to be on this ride. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And it's be, you know, well, number one, we don't have the capacity, you know, as the audience, we don't have the capacity to go down every loophole with you. You need to keep us attached, you know, to the idea as much as possible and keep throwing unexpected things at us. Anything expected, we can pick up our phones and do it ourselves. So any kind of data or any story that it's like, oh yeah, I was expecting this dude to say this, you know, like that's another thing. And I don't think people understand that it's not a lot of hard work. And yes, you know, to answer your question before, I do make people do research. When I'm coaching somebody to give a TED talk, I make them go out and do research. And research usually leads to research, meaning you start off thinking you're going to research something and it takes you down a rabbit hole that is cool and you end up somewhere else. And it's that little bit of work that you're doing that is so great for your audiences because, your audience hasn't taken the time to go two, three, four levels deep on what you're talking about. And any idea that you have and you give to the world, it should be as deep as possible and as wide as possible. And as wide as possible to me always means how many people can you, how universal is this idea? How many people can you include into this idea? Or is it just specifically only to a very small segmented group of people in the world? And then of course, how deep can you take it? If everybody believes that Bullying is no good. That's awesome. That's like ground level. What's going to be the next level below that? And then what's the next level under that? And then what's the next level? Like, take me deeper and deeper and deeper.
1: I think that's great. The idea that's resonating in the last few comments there is that if it's not deep enough, it's something that they can grab their phone and look at. Yeah. Right. And then it just draws the attention away. And you see people when they're in the audience and they might get just a surface level and they might be interested. And if you don't take them down that hole, they're going to go down the hole by themselves and they're going to stop listening.
0: They're going to stop listening. They're going to go down the hole themselves. They're going to find something better than what you're saying. And and in (laughs) effect, we're referring
1: to the to the phone as the hole, (laughs) the the phone hole.
0: Yeah, the phone could totally be the hole. And you know it when you're a speaker, and you know you can tell by the look on somebody's face if they are actually tweeting something exciting that you said, or if they're like, "Dude, skip this guy." Like I'm just (laughs) trying to like I'm just trying to like. I'm trying to look something else up myself, or if they're taking a picture or you, you can tell. And I think that's one of the things too, is to be, you know, as a speaker presenter, you always have to be aware of how people are digesting what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. So before we transition to the how you monetize a message, how you get on the TEDx stage, how you increase your stage time, I want to pick your brain quickly on this idea of conversational keynotes or conversational presentations. Have you heard of that phrase before?
0: Yeah, of course. Cause you know, that's Ted talks are supposed to be conversations. So yes. Yeah.
1: Well, Okay. So may, maybe in a, in a, maybe I'm not using the right verbiage here, but there's this idea of like, cause Ted is Ted is a very one way broadcast, right? I mean, it's very conversational, but this idea I'm doing more research. I'm interested in these conversational presentations where, you know, the Q and a is maybe in the middle and your whole keynote or your whole presentation changed depending on how the audience wants it. Like this audience engagement, I'm curious if you've played with that or your thoughts on that instead of having a, I'm going to talk for 45 minutes, really setting them up and making it almost like a choose your own adventure. Um, I'm interested in that as a format. I don't know what your thoughts are.
0: Yeah. I actually coached one of my friends who speaks in the kind of HR world on that. And he gave a big presentation one time and the audience was offended. (laughs) They're like, we, I mean, it's a very specific field and they're like, we expected, we expected you to be the, you know, the expert here, not to show up and be like, Hey, where do you want to go with this? Uh So I I think it can backfire on you sometimes, but I think if you're a good presenter and you're a good, like you're a good energetic, I think it doesn't, work as well with some people as it does with others. But I mean, some people naturally have this energy to them that, you know, they allow for a lot of conversation. I mean, I always start my presentations off with like, hey, I don't want to be here talking at you guys. Like, let's do this together. So let's, you know, and I kind of give that hybrid feel of like, we're going to go down. I have some, st- I have a shit ton of stuff prepared. Don't get me wrong. Like I have stuff prepared here, but I don't need to like bang it, you know, into your head if there's some other direction that we need to go. right? So I do think it's, it's a really good way to do it. And you have to be able to pull that off. You have to be able to kind of engage with the audience. And you know how that thing is too. Like sometimes the biggest problem that people have in, in sessions when it's Q and A is you'll, you'll get the audience to either a you won't get them to engage at all. And it's like pulling teeth or you'll get them to engage so much that somebody will be sucking up a bunch of time. And then you as a presenter, you've lost control and you didn't know how to gain it back. And, you know, Mm. so there's all these facets to it. But I think in the end, you have to, you have to teach people, you have to inspire people, you have to be able to influence them through the inspiration of your of what you're teaching and your ideas. And so, yeah, I do. I love this. It's, I love that kind of style where it is definitely more conversational and um, you just get to drop knowledge here and there. And, you know, ultimately we get paid for our experiences because we're out there, you know, I, I always like to tell my clients, you can't live. There's two pieces to what you do, no matter what it is that you do, there's the practical and there's the theory piece. And if you're actually practicing something like you're working, like for me, it'd be working one-on-one with a client, teaching them how to pitch or how to present or how to give a Ted talk. And if all I do anymore is that, and I'm not actually doing it myself anymore, I'm only in theory at this point, (laughs) like, you have to (laughs) ride in both. You can't just quit your one side and go, okay, cool. Now for the rest of my life, I'm going to tell people what to do. That doesn't work. So you have to practice it as well.
1: That's like driving without a license. That's like yeah. having your drunk uncle be your validation. You're like, "Hey, I say you can drive, so you can drive." And then you're like teaching people how to drive but you don't have a license, right?
0: Yeah, or there's new types of cars that come out. Or I'm trying to teach you how to drive a motorcycle <laughs> and I've never ridden anything but a moped. Like
1: <laughs> Right, right. Well, so let's talk about upgrading the vehicles and and upgrading the cars and going from cars to boats to planes to trains to Teslas to rocket ships when it comes to this analogy. How do you take It from a 1977 Cougar to a 2018 Tesla turbo supercharged, whatever, right? Like
0: in ludicrous mode.
1: (laughs) In ludicrous mode. (laughs) May the Schwartz be with you. Yeah. Yeah. How do you tap into the Schwartz and the Force out there? What I'm assuming part of your coaching is. Not only once you have the gig, but do you incorporate how to get the gigs? Do you help people to get onto the TEDx stages? Do you help people to get more stage time to get those paid keynotes? Is that part of your shtick?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. It's kind of funny. I, you know, that's become a huge part of what I do. And when I first started, it kind of surprised me because at first I'm like, okay, I'm going to, you know, coach my client on, on kind of the art of being able to communicate. And, and then I realized quickly that, you know, when people are actually taking the time, especially people in the Ted stage where many times, Speaking isn't their big gig. If they're doing something else in life that's amazing, and they got asked to give a talk. But they all kind of realized that being on a stage and being able to, to speak is a big megaphone that they could definitely use. So that became a huge piece is me trying to help people, you know, generate places to speak or to get on TED stages and whatnot. I think too you find your people like you find who you're great for. I mean here's a great example. I live in Portland and and you know Nike found me and I'm a very Nike person. But I also work with Intel and I do this thing with them once a year with Intel where I teach them how to present, like a, how to rock a, I have this thing called how to rock a presentation. And I do it like once a year for this big annual thing. And I think that the Intel people are like, oh my God, that's amazing. I wish I could present like that. And as soon as I leave, they're like, oh my God, I'm never like, <laughs> I'm never going to do that. But for me, when I, like the first time I went to Nike, I was like, oh my gosh, they're my people. Like this is, <laughs> you know, it really fit well. And so like the 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 kind of jobs that I look for would be very different than the kind of jobs that one of my clients might look for. And so I try to help them find where it is that they're going to be able to find their best platform. And I think the world tries to tell us that, you know, for instance, the world tries to tell us like, oh, everybody should give a TED Talk. Well, maybe that's not right for everybody. You know, it just depends. So I don't, I guess what I'm trying to say, I don't push any one thing with anybody. You know what I mean? Like
1: Right, right.
0: Even though I'm actually a TED coach, I wouldn't tell, I wouldn't just carte blanche tell somebody, oh, you should give a TED talk.
1: Right. And the TED stage is particular in that it's really for people who have these amazing ideas, concepts that are worth sharing, and and that's a platform for it. So let's talk real quick about platforms. If you were to to sort of slice the platforms into these different categories and maybe associate a vehicle with it, what are the minimum number of cars or vehicles that would act as platforms for speakers? Just to generalize it, because we could get crazy in, in all kinds of specifics, but yeah, yeah, if we were to talk about the different cars that you can drive and the cars being the stage that you can be on, what would those classifications look like? And then maybe we can hit each one of them for what it takes to drive it and maybe some advice on how to get into that car.
0: Well, I kind of think there's these big, really general things. Of course, there's there's speaking and then there's presenting or training. You know, there's like actual training and then there's more keynoting, which is more in the speaking realm. And I've personally done this hybrid of my marketing world and my speaking world, too. And I've created kind of another one that might be in between the two where I have people on a retainer model. So it kind of falls a little bit more under the training. However, there's a lot of speaking that goes with it. Does that make sense? You know, like some of what I'll do will actually just be speaking, but some of what I'm doing is training as well. And then I just get somebody on a retainer model. So yeah, I mean, I I would definitely say keynoting and and training would be like two big areas. I guess that would be like a motorcycle and a car or something like that, you
1: know? Okay. So what I'm, I'm thinking here, I just took some notes. So speaking is almost like a Toyota. Right. It's like it can be a nice Toyota, it can be a regular Toyota. You could speak at a local Toastmasters. It might be a lower, older model, but you can get something that's nice and fancy and it's up there in a general sense. And then training, I'm thinking of it like a Land Rover, you know, something you're going to strap in. It's a little off road. You're really in the dirt. You're not on the regular roads. It's more of an off road vehicle. And then the keynoting, I think almost is like a Bentley, right? Where it's like big, sexy, you know, expensive, high class. You know, sixty thousand pound car that you're just like, but it's got the power and beast of of and nimbleness of whatever. And then your hybrid, I like that as an actual hybrid, <laughs> like a yeah, like yeah. a Prius or something. Yeah. Okay, so let's jam through these, and maybe you can give your your top tips on effective ways to try to get in that car. So for speaking in probably the most general sense, how do you get into that Toyota, or just does everybody start off in a Toyota? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always that motto of kind of going from free to shining fee. And I think you always have to pay your dues in in anything that you do, no matter what industry you're in. And speaking is no doubt the same way. So of course, you know, I I had this ex-military, like Navy SEAL kind of dude that was my first mentor. And he used to always tell me, whatever you do, Kathy, whatever stage you're on, I don't care. Whatever you do, don't suck. And I was just (laughs) always terrified. Like I was like, he's like, I don't care. I don't give a crap. And he was always cussing at me, you know, like he's like, I don't care what stage it is. I don't care if it's Toastmasters. I don't care if it's a Girl Scout troop, like make sure that you don't suck. But, you know, he, and he was always pushing me, of course, to speak anywhere that I could, you know, and, and I do, I think, I think too, as we get further along, we realize the benefit of Pushing yourself to in a spot where you can feel new again, That meaning we get so used to, to being on stages now and walking into companies and doing stuff that it's not that you don't care anymore. You just can't get that feeling again where you're like, oh, my God, you know, I'm about to go on a stage and speak. And I think that if you're not pushing yourself in those areas, you're not growing. Yeah. So do new things. Right. The only Toastmasters club I go to anymore is a TV one, so it's kind of interesting. You're in this little room and you're having to give a you know talk or speech, and you're you're talking only to a camera. Oh wow! So you, it's it's so much harder. Like you have to sit there and go, okay. Well, I can't see an audience, so I have to. I really have to work on how well this is going to be digested, you know, and how well am I doing? Wow, that's cool. I dig that. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you push yourself and how do you get yourself in there? So, yes, I think that's important. And so I do think that everybody, you know, maybe and maybe somebody doesn't, maybe, you know, I think some people come into it and they might be better than, you know, others. I mean, look at the comedian world. Some people work there and they work 20 years and then all of a sudden they're an overnight success, you know, and Mm -hmm. then other people come along and they do great right away. But I do think that, you know, that is an important piece to the next two the problem that i find with the bentley or the the keynoting is and i love it don't get me wrong like keynoting is so much fun and i love i love to do it but if that's your business model you're having to throw it away and replicate it every single day meaning you have to go find another gig you have to go find another gig you have to find another gig and your entire business and and my MIT smart ass brother-in-law told me this one time when I was starting my business he's like awesome I love your family by the way I know they're (laughs) they're crazy when I started my business he's like awesome how are you going to be anything other than self-employed if you're a speaker and I was like hot damn he's right (laughs) (laughs) so he really was somebody that pushed me my mind into going, okay, well, how do I actually make this a business and not, because even if you're keynoting, you're getting a lot of money. The minute you stop speaking, you don't have money anymore. Right. So yeah, it's a Bentley. It's great. And you can lose it really quick or you have to replicate it all the time. So I like to keep that as only a piece of my portfolio and what I do. And then of course the training, you have a lot more, it's not as sexy. It is kind of off road. You do get a little dirty. You have have to kind of get your hands in the dirt a little bit, but it's probably the one that takes you the deepest and you can make the most money overall because you can replicate that business over and over. You can stay with one client and they can hire you for training consistently. You can come up with programs that they can utilize. You know, you can create workbooks. Um, you can create audio that will go along with what you do in addition to what you teach live. And there's a lot of areas that you can work in there and make a lot of money. So it's maybe not as sexy, but there's also a lot more to do, but you still have that problem that it's you and it's your IP and you're always having to create. So then I think another area that you have to fall into is your products. You know, you have to create, you have to constantly be creating products and what I actually call memorable models. I mean, you should always have a system for anything that you teach because people won't remember anything unless it's via some kind of system, you know? Yeah. And that's probably a whole nother discussion, but that's how I would cover each one of those areas. I
1: dig it. And I feel like I am going to apply for my, my series C license and then whatever else for, (laughs) for just up my game. I don't have my motorcycles license yet. I'm trying to think of like what in the speaking world could Create that uh, crazy excitement, but not kill me because I have this. My parents basically said you cannot smoke cigarettes and you cannot ride a motorcycle. Anything else, good to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, those have been my my goalposts.
0: And it wasn't the first thing that you did when you turned 18 was smoked a cigarette on a motorcycle.
1: (laughs) No, no, believe it or not. No, they did a good job at, uh, you know, psychologically wounding me to follow their directions. They're educators. They're very smart.
0: They're very smart. (laughs) They had it planned. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I never got grounded. I would just have to write essays on what I did wrong and how I could improve and the impact (laughs) that it would have. (laughs) Psychological warfare. But I loved it. It was good.
0: Yeah, that is great. That's fantastic. I wish I had your parents. (laughs) <laughs> well,
1: I wish I had your family. A drunk uncle sounds like fun. A smart ass from MIT sounds pretty cool. I mean, somebody who you're teaching and they get you lost specifically in the cul de sacs just so they can selfishly like get more riding time. Like it sounds like a good match, you know. We could <laughs> we could all do Thanksgiving together sometime and have a hoot.
0: Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be great.
1: Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I I really don't think I'm ever going to start my car without some sort of recollection of the connection between speaking and driving, and I think it's a fun analogy to run with. Maybe it'll be your next book or something like that, but it really, the more I think about it, the more... I think we could dive into it. And speaking is like driving in many senses. And there's so many yeah. so many ways to have a, a nicer, fancier car. But at the end of the day, regardless of what your car looks like, it's who's in your car, your audience and the passengers that you're bringing from point A to point B yeah. safely. Right? Yep. That's great. It's really good, Ryan. Well, say, if somebody wants you to to teach them how to drive, drunk or not, where's the best place <laughs> for them to find you and contact you?
0: Uh, Yeah, definitely my website, KathyArmias.com, but I'm Kathy with an E, -E C-A-T-H-E-Y.
1: And Armia's like Tortillas, it's A-R-M-I-L-L-A-S. Yes. We'll get all that in the show notes and everything. Well, very cool. Well, I might even hit you up because I always think that having other people help you to drive is going to help you get further and faster and uh, they're safer and quicker. Well, maybe not safer if it's on a motorcycle, (laughs) but that's okay. More exciting. (laughs) Quicker. All right. Well, hey, this is fantastic. I hope that we keep connected online and uh, maybe we'll share the stage sometime. Who knows?
0: Yeah, it sounds great. Thanks so much, Ryan, for having me on.
1: For sure. Now, all of you listeners, if you enjoyed this, which I'm sure you did, there's plenty more to enjoy out there. There's lots of other cars to jump into and they come in the form of other World of Speakers podcasts. And again, make sure to leave a review and reach out to Kathy and even connect with her because this information is just like a car in idle. You got to jump in and take what you've learned for a ride to get your audience to the destination that you want. Leave us a review, share this with your friend, hit us up on social, all that good stuff, because together we are larger world speakers. And as we support each other, we can make more of an impact around the world safely. And don't drink and drive. (laughs) No matter what you do, don't drink and drive. Drinking and speaking? Maybe that's a whole other topic or episode. All right, everybody. Stay safe. Thanks again, Kathy. Fun times, and we'll talk to you soon.
0: All right. Take care.